for those who haven't met me, my name's Anthony, uh, and as I usually say for those who have, it's still Anthony. <sighs> Maybe I should change it one day. Um, let me pray as we think about this chapter. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning, and we pray that it would, uh, it would speak to us in, uh, in this day, in the situations and in the relationships in which we find ourselves, that you would teach us once again what it is to be people who know Jesus and trust him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The morning of March 18th, 1967, it's nobody's birthday, is it? Okay, that's good news. Uh, The morning of March 18th dawned bright and clear. It was a a beautiful, crisp morning. The sun was shining over the sparkling waters of the Celtic Sea just off the coast of Cornwall. It was, uh, no one could have argued, it was a perfect day on which to wreck a 120,000 tonne supertanker and spill its load of crude oil into the sea in what was then the world's worst maritime environmental disaster. It was a great day for it. But uh, let me back this up a little bit so that you get the, uh, the full impact of the chain of events that led Captain Ruggiati, who had 20 years of experience uh, commanding oil tankers uh, and was there at the helm of one of the largest ships built in the history of the world, what it was that enabled him to watch and dither as his ship bore straight down on the reef which gutted her. We'll start in his defence. Uh, Ruggiati was in a hurry. If he mucked around too much, uh, he wouldn't arrive at the destination port in time to catch the tides and would then have to twiddle his thumbs for a week just waiting for the tides to come up to the right height. And so uh, he was kind of keen not to to waste time. The the night before, he'd set a course to to sort of take a shortcut. Uh, You've got the the coast of, of Cornwall and then the Scilly Isles, it's a silly name, but that's what they, they had. Uh, and there is a gap in between them. If you're coming through the channel, you can cut the corner and go up into Wales. Uh, the plan was to go through that gap. And so he, he'd plotted the course and then he'd stayed up late filling out his paperwork so that when he arrived at the port, again, there wouldn't be any hold-ups and he'd be able to deliver his cargo. Uh, so he was a little bit tired. It wasn't his fault that during the night the currents had dragged his ship slightly off course. Now, that said, this was a fairly avoidable disaster. The Seven Stones Reef had been marked on every map made of this area for the last, se- th- the last three centuries uh, since somebody else ran into it. And it was thought, yes, that's an inconvenience to shipping, we should let people know. But just in case you couldn't read a map, uh, the authorities had parked a lighthouse ship in front of the reef. That's where you don't have... Ground, solid ground to, to build a lighthouse on but you really need one because there's something in the way and so there's this ugly ship moored right there, Seven Stones Reef and a big shining light. It was, as I mentioned, a bright sunny day, you could see clearly but there was a ship there just to make sure you, you, you didn't miss it. What's more, the crew of the SS Torrey Canyon not only knew that the reef was there but actually had deliberately steered straight towards it. You might think that's a bad idea, but what they were thinking was, the captain has had three hours sleep, he may be cranky to find out that we're a little off course, so let's make it easy for him. We'll head straight to the reef and say, it's in front of us, we're going left or right. Give him the choice. 
Unfortunately, the captain, when the time came, decided that he would squeeze through the slightly narrower side between uh, the Scilly Isles and the reef. And then as, as they were kind of bringing the ship round through this turn that was just going to let them kind of slide right by and keep on going, it turns out it's a great fishing spot. And there were a few fishing nets out. Oh, we'd better duck around them and try not to hit any of the boats. But that's okay. We'll just swing around and, uh, and straighten up and go through the channel. But just at the moment when that final course adjustment was required, the course didn't adjust. The Torrey Canyon kept on going straight ahead. Straight ahead was not what they were after. Ruggiati, in a, you know, in a bit of a panic, uh, called the engine room to see if they knew why the steering wasn't responding, but unfortunately dialed the number for the dining room and they wanted to know what he wanted for breakfast. Uh, at that point, I believe he announced to anyone who was listening that God was a pig. Anyway, uh, at that moment, he glanced across the bridge and he saw someone had accidentally bumped the control that disconnected the steering controls from the rudder. That's why it wasn't changing course. Uh, and of course, flip the switch again. But 30 seconds is a long time at the helm of a super tanker. And it was not enough time to avoid going straight into the reef. Now, from our vantage point here half a century later and in comfortable seats, it must be said, with little pressure on us to, uh, to manage multi-million dollar loads, uh, it is easy for us to say somewhere in that two-hour period, maybe he should have thought about just hitting the brakes by a little time. But unfortunately, Ruggiati was committed to his planned course of action, that you know, he had to arrive in time, and the way was there, there was a path to be threaded. It, of course it'll work. He never stopped and found the moment to say, this actually isn't going very well, is it? Maybe I should start with a new plan. It's pretty obvious that the top priority when you are controlling a super tanker is to stay afloat, but Ruggiati missed the obvious. Well, actually, he hit it dead on, but anyway. Uh, this morning we come to Mark chapter 5, and it's a cracker of a story. You know, as Heather was reading it, there's drama and action aplenty. It's a vivid tale that grabs hold of our imagination. And my guess is you're probably actually picturing the scene as, as we heard it read. You know, the, the green hillside, the pink pigs, the blues, the, I don't know, whatever it was. But uh, lots of detail, lots of uh, images to take hold of. And so I thought I'd ask you, what, what detail in the story from Mark, what stood out to you? What, what did you go, oh, that's really interesting. Shane made a point about fresh translations. What, what jumped out of you? Non-rhetorical question. Anyone? <laughs> yes, uh, that might have been his problem. Yep. Anything else in uh, the story with the demon possessed man? You, you read those kind of stories all the time? You're all a bit shy. I've got it. The sea strangled them. That's a nice turn of phrase, isn't it? You know, grabbing hold of the, the pigs by the throat. I, I thought of a few options. Uh, I was always under the impression that Superman was invented in the 20th century for a comic book, but uh, this guy has superhuman strength. That's pretty unusual. Uh, I didn't know that demons got along so well that they could all hang out in the one person. Uh, and frankly, I'm, I'm sort of surprised and disappointed that nobody mentioned the tragic waste of bacon. 
But I'll tell you the detail that very few people will notice. The thing that sort of slides past us. It's the prominence of the location among the tombs. The man comes from the tombs to meet Jesus, we're told. We, we learn that he lived among the tombs, that he would cry out among the tombs. When you get told something more than once, you're supposed to notice it. It's one of the most featured details of the story and yet we tend to look past it. Like Ruggiati, we miss the obvious. I think it's because we live in a society that is so afraid of death that we're trained and we train ourselves and each other to live in denial. It's not the elephant in the room that we're busy ignoring, it's actually a gravestone with our name on it. Like Ruggiati, for many of our friends and neighbours, they spend so long looking away from their greatest problem that they don't notice it until they crash into it themselves and it's too late to save them. So that's what Mark offers us this morning as he turns to things that are quite literally matters of life and death. He's very deliberately getting us to look at the issues front on, showing us how Jesus is the one who can rescue us from death. See, this thing about the tombs, it's not an accidental detail that just kind of slipped in there. This afflicted man has his own version of Legionnaire's disease. His so-called neighbours might not be able to chain him up anymore, but this legion of evil spirits has no trouble at all and what they have chained him to is death. He lives among the dead and has no fate to look forward to beyond the grave. He's not a zombie perhaps, but he is one of the living dead. Now sometimes, uh, you'll know this, as you read a story in the Bible, you'll, you'll come across some detail and you think, I don't really, I don't get the significance of that. I mean, it must have been important to, to write it down, but I don't, I don't quite have the background knowledge that I need. And, you know, you might consult a commentary or ask somebody, uh, you know, it, it might, it's entirely possible that in a crowd this large there is someone who's not familiar with the appropriate shepherding techniques in Palestine or, or knows a lot about how to grow olives, for example. Those are times where it's helpful to learn a bit and fill in the background in order to understand what the Bible's saying, but this is not one of those times because death is a universal part of human experience. We all know about death. You don't need a crash course on first century funeral practices to understand what's happening here in this story. It's right before our eyes. In verse 2, we're told this man confronts Jesus. That's a strong word, isn't it? Immediately. Jesus barely touched land and this guy runs up and confronts him. It's an aggressive tone to introduce the character and that impression only gets stronger as we learn more about him. In verse 3 we're told that nobody can bind him any longer. Any longer, of course, tells us it used to work. Been doing it for a while. It's just stopped working. He's too strong. Uh, the fact that nobody can do it lets us know that there's been a few who've tried. This man is dangerous uh, and infamous. The, the local community has tried everything they can to kind of keep him under control and boxed up and it doesn't work anymore. He's a loose cannon. I've never been to Tokyo, but I'm given to understand when a sumo wrestler gets on the train, you know what seat they take? Whichever one they want. 
That's what this guy's like. He's feared. The people have tried over and over to restrain him, but there is no restraining him anymore. He can do what he likes. He can go wherever he pleases. And he has chosen to live among the dead because death lives in him. Now, having set this guy up as someone to be feared, Mark surprises us. This confrontation that we were told about in verse 2 is detailed from verse 6 and well, it's a fizzer. It's over before it even begins. The man confronts Jesus by falling at his feet. There is no question about who is more powerful here, who is in charge. The demons answer Jesus' question when he asks it. They obey his command. All they can do is beg Jesus to be merciful to them. They're not uh, suddenly broken, you know, I don't know what a broken demon would be described as, but, you know, just kind of quivering in fear or, or whatever. They remain as evil and unclean as ever, and we see that their malice is there from the needless slaughter of the pigs. They still represent the power of death, just ask any of the pigs, but the encounter makes it clear that death's servants are no match for the Lord. Now we might be content to stop right here and be glad with what we've been reminded of, that this encouragement that the forces of death and evil are no match for Jesus. But Mark is a really gifted storyteller and we need to see the rest of the chapter to dig out what he's showing us. So I just thought, yeah, it was a good start, let's finish it off. Let me read from verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed to the other side, so we're back from the Gentile side to the Jewish side, when he crossed to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. Jesus was beside the sea, and one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, saying that my little daughter is about to die. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she may be saved and live. Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and began pressing up against him. Now, there was a woman who was in a state of bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered much at the hands of many doctors. They weren't as good then, by the way. Uh, Had spent all that she owned on treatment and achieved nothing but become worse. Having heard about Jesus, she approached him from behind in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she reasoned that if I touch him, even if it's just his cloak, I'll be saved. Immediately the source of her bleeding dried up and she felt in her body that she was cured of her affliction. Jesus immediately recognised in himself as well that power had come out of him. He turned around amongst the crowd and said, Who touched my cloak? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing up against you and yet you say, Who touched me? Jesus looked around to see the woman who did this. But the woman, afraid and trembling, having understood what had happened to her, came and fell before him, and she told the whole truth. But he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. While he was still speaking, men came from the house of the synagogue ruler, saying that your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any longer? But Jesus overheard this message as it was being relayed. He said to the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just have faith. 
Jesus did not allow anyone to follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came into the house of the synagogue ruler and saw a commotion, people crying and wailing loudly, Jesus entered and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and crying? The child is not dead but sleeping. The people started laughing at him, but he cast them all out. He took hold of the child's father, mother and those with him and went into where the child was laying. He then took hold of the child's hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which when interpreted means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl got up and started walking about. She was 12 years old. The people were absolutely shocked out of their minds. Jesus then gave them stern orders that nobody was to know about this. He then said to give the girl something to eat. It's a nice little touch, isn't it? It'll bring you back to life, but make sure you're well fed as well. Now, at first glance, uh, these stories are unrelated. We have a demon-possessed Gentile man, a shy Jewish woman with a chronic illness, and a dead Jewish girl. But remember, we're trying to look at what we normally overlook. So we should take note of the fact that the woman, due to her bleeding, would have been seen as ritually unclean under the Jewish law. She would have been a pariah within her own community. She might not have been quite as unpopular as the demon-possessed man. I don't think she had superhuman strength, just the opposite. But she was just as likely to be shunned. And of course, in a world without blood transfusions, it, was po- it wasn't possible to keep bleeding for year after year after year without some physical weakness. She's been living at death's door in a metaphorical sense, just as the man has been living in a literal sense. And as for the young girl, well, she's just dead. Between the three of them, they are going, going and gone. Three people who are well and truly in the grip of death. They're all afflicted by it, but the impact in each case is slightly different. Similar, but uh, there's, there's shading and variation. For the man, his anticipation of death has brought about isolation. No one will go near him. And we know that's the impact of death even today, isn't it? When death invades someone's life, obviously when someone who we love dies, we are isolated from them. That's a major part of our grief. But even the dying are isolated. We struggle to know how to be with them. Our instinct is to shy away from this terrible thing that's caught them. We put them out of sight. After death, we hide them in the ground. Or while they're dying, we might sequester them away in uh, in isolation wards or send the lepers off to islands to die by themselves. We, we, are, we know that death brings isolation. For the woman, her, her death was about uncleanness. Her exclusion is personal. Her neighbours, her family would have been disgusted by her. And this is still true for us as well as we encounter death today. The the process of dying terrifies us and horrifies us. Not just death itself but watching how each person reaches that. There's a taint that comes from dying. We're, We're hyper aware when someone is in that situation and it takes an extra effort of compassion to be with the dying and just to treat them as themselves. We know about uncleanness as well. And then finally the girl who shows us that death in the end 
is about despair. Don't, don't bother the teacher, it's too late. There's nothing left to do for her except to weep and wail. There's no coming back. Death claims us all eventually. And we know that, don't we? Isolation, uncleanness and despair. They're present in, in every situation, but the, the three characters highlight those aspects of death. The power of death to ruin our lives, even when we just catch a whiff of it. Even when it's someone we just vaguely know in the periphery, we still get that chill. Now that, of course, is why so much human ingenuity is throwing out the problem, isn't it? We've got uh, medical research to try and extend life, to eliminate diseases. I think that's a current affair in the press at the moment, isn't it? I'm you know, one needle in to, to a vaccine myself. It's, it's great. We're, we're trying to, to make things go back to normal. You know that world where death doesn't exist? We're still kidding ourselves. We don't like to admit the problem. When we do, we'll have a go at fixing it and we're very clever. We can do stuff. So that brings me back to the Torrey Canyon and its 120,000 tonne problem. Uh, I mean, that was a problem that the authorities couldn't ignore. You know, when a, a beach washes up in crude oil, it's terrible for the tourism. And so uh, they needed to figure out what they were going to do about it to, uh, to save the, you know, the little fishies and, and the, the beachside resorts in Cornwall and Brittany. The problem had to be acknowledged, but human ingenuity can come to the rescue. Now we have, for thousands of years, we've known what to do with oil, right? That's why we collect it. You can burn it to to cook or to to create light. And so if you've got too much oil in the one place and you can't do anything with it, the solution is, oh, let's just burn the thing off, right? So how do you set fire to a slick of oil that's covering the sea? Well, nobody wanted to go in with the matches. And so instead the British Air Force came in with thousand-pound uh, bombs. We'll just drop that on the oil. Uh, and you might be thinking, that's a little bit ridiculous. It'll just splash and that'll be a big mess. So they threw in a bit of aviation fuel as well, just to be like the starter fluid. Um, it turns out, actually, that this oil slick was, uh, was very shifty. It was able to evade a quarter of the bombs that were dropped on it. Remarkable thing, human ingenuity. Um, it turned out that didn't work. Would you believe setting fire to oil in the presence of an ocean, um, the ocean wins. Uh, and so the flames went out. But that's all right. We've got, we've got the whole resources of, uh, of the modern uh, technological world, fire that's not lighting. You know, you can get your little jiffy fire lighters, but, but the British uh, military, they had something even better. Napalm. So yes, they, they dropped 3,000 gallons of napalm onto the, uh, the Celtic Sea. Uh, it, it burns like nobody's business, but apparently, even still, the Atlantic Ocean uh, is stronger. So that didn't work. Okay, if you can't set fire to oil, but you still want to get rid of the mess, we know how to do this at home, don't we? You've got an oil, oil stain somewhere, what do you get it out with? A bit of detergent. Now, when you've got a very large oil stain, you're going to need a lot of detergent, but BP had uh, 10,000 spare gallons of a special formula that was purpose designed to break up the oil, and let me tell you, it broke up the oil beautifully into all these tiny little bits and pieces that sank below the surface of the waves so that all the fish and marine life could absorb it and die. 
We're, we're five decades on and the, some of the populations are only just beginning to recover from this. But even so, some of this sneaky stuff evaded all these clever solutions and made their way to the beaches. And of course, by this time, it's a bit saltwater logged and it's useless and so it, was, it had to be collected up and thrown out. And so if you ever happen to be on the island of Guernsey and you wander by a disused quarry, you'll discover that's where they dump the oil. It's still there, sitting in this black lake, waiting for someone to actually figure out a solution. Human ingenuity. If we can't fix the problem, we can hide it at least, can't we? We can put it out of view, which is what we do with death. And it's a useless solution. Uh, it's a fake solution. If we think that human ingenuity can solve our problem with death, Mark has three words for us. Pigs might fly. The humans in the story can't deal with death. Their ropes and chains don't work. Their doctors don't work. Even the wailing and crying doesn't work but something does. We see in, in the passage that Heather read three pleas, three times that Jesus is pleaded with. In verse 10, the demons plead with Jesus because they know that Jesus means life. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In verse 17, the people, they plead with Jesus to leave. That seems an odd response and yet, Uh, you and I know as we talk with people about Jesus, so often that's the response that we get. The majority of people seem uninterested in turning uh, turning to Jesus. They continue on and are destined to hit the rocks, the reef and to founder. But then in verse 18, third time lucky perhaps, uh, the man pleads to stay with Jesus because he's worked out that Jesus is the source of life. He's, he's dealt with his problem and Jesus accepts his trust but also tells him, you need to go and tell others. You need to keep proclaiming this solution that you've found. Faced with death, the answer for each of us is to earnestly trust Jesus. That's what that word plead means, by the way. It's not just you know, put in a request and sign it and send it off to the bureaucrat. To plead is to earnestly ask for something. We are to indeed earnestly turn to Christ and that frees us from our fear of death. But that's not enough. You know, If uh, there's seven billion people out there and we're okay, that's really not close to a pass mark, is it? And so God tells us, to, to, like, the, like the man, we should go out and tell others about the hope that we've found. It's the oldest application in the book, of course, isn't it? But it's because it's the important one. Jesus came so that we might be freed from our fear of death, so that we might have the hope of living beyond death. Now, you might think, uh, as I've been speaking this morning, that I've been say, saying over and over, We've got this really big problem. Don't look away from it. Don't take your eyes off it. You know it's there. Don't, be, don't fool yourself. Don't look away from death. But I actually want to say even more than that. Look to Jesus. That's what Mark's telling us. 
Jesus is the, is the figure at the centre of the, all these stories, at the centre of the storm, and each time he is calm and able and powerful. Death is and always will be a problem for humanity. And we will always see people trying to find ways around it. But in the end, there is only one way around death, only one victor over death. We need to look to him and we need to call others to look to him. Otherwise, frankly, they and we are being pretty stupid. Let me pray that God will give us all that common sense. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the uh, unavoidable and undisputable proof that Jesus has conquered death through his own death and resurrection. Thank you for opening our eyes to this truth and bringing us to faith in him and we pray that you would help us to proclaim this great message and that you would have, you would have mercy on many, that you would rescue people from death so that we might joy, enjoy life together with you through all eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Anthony. You know, one of the things that I was hearing as Anthony spoke to us was that uh, that limitation, yet allure of human intuit of humans trying to fix stuff, whether it's a super tanker or it's at the hour of death. And it's something that I suspect we all get lured into. I can figure this out. And you have some success and you have some failure. It probably marks our life at all times. And that kind of human go-it-alone spirit that never results in an ultimate, uh, an ultimate solution is called sin. It's when we go without God and we want to figure it out for ourselves. And so I want to offer you a moment now uh, to come before God in the quietness of your own heart. And think about the spaces maybe in this week or maybe beyond where you've chosen to go just by yourself. Do not feel ashamed at the stuff where it hasn't worked out or whatever, but to bring those things to God now, to dump them at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I, I, I tried to figure this out without you and I acknowledge the mistake. I want you to lead me. I want to offer you that moment just to do business with God now and to entrust yourself to Jesus who is the one who can lift us up from even challenges like death. And take that moment.